Our main text uh, this morning comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. And I'll read that through before we begin our message. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And may God, the Holy Spirit, grant us the wisdom to understand the text before us. The epistle to the Colossians was written sometime between 60 and 64 AD by the Apostle Paul, as we gather, from Rome to the church at Colossae. In the fourth chapter of Colossians, verses 7 to 9, Paul states that this letter or epistle is to be delivered to them via Tychicus and Onesimus, who will declare unto them more fully Paul's state of affairs. Now, Colossae was a city of Phrygia, a province in Asia Minor, north of the Mediterranean Sea. Colossae was in the southern part of the province, nearly directly east of Ephesus. It was also north of Laodicea and west of Antioch. Today, this ancient city is extinct. We have no evidence that Paul personally ever came to the church at Colossae, even though he, along with Timothy and Silas, preached throughout Phrygia, as we read in Acts 15, verses 42 uh, 
91, I think it is, and Acts 16, verses 1 to 3 and verse 6. Uh, nevertheless, whatever the case may be, this little body of believers was very precious to the Apostle Paul. And the purpose of his writing to them, this particular epistle, was to protect the saints from errors and false teachings that were already prevalent among the churches of that part of Asia. We must realize that Colossae was only one of many churches which formed a circle and were close to each other. Therefore, the same views of philosophy and types of errors in that area most likely reached this church and to a certain degree also affected it. Paul therefore exposes some of those errors in chapter 2 after he establishes the supremacy of Christ and his all-sufficiency for the believer. It was therefore the design of the epistle to the Colossians to primarily guard these saints against the errors to which they were exposed and to assert the superior claims of Christianity over all other religions and philosophies. And once the doctrines have been set straight, Paul presents the applications of these doctrines to the individual Christians. Correct doctrine leads to correct practices, while incorrect doctrine always leads to incorrect practices. We need only to look around us today. So many so-called Christian churches have so departed from the truth of Scripture that they are only Christian in name. Their practices are an abomination to God because they have substituted the old-fashioned preaching of the cross for the modern teaching of a social gospel. Instead of making the sinner conform to the gospel, they make the gospel conform to the sinner. They have taken out the blood. They have taken out the deity of Christ. They have taken out the wrath of God. They have taken out hell. They have taken out the holiness of God and turned him into their own image. There is no sin in the modern gospel. There is no right and wrong. There is no one way, one truth, one life. But rather all roads, all religions lead to God. They do not fear their God. They have made him a compromising God. He allows homosexuals to preach in his churches. He allows women to usurp the roles which Jehovah God delegated to men. He allows everyone into his kingdom regardless of their beliefs or doctrines because he is the God that they have conjured up in their own minds. But dearly beloved, just as the days when this epistle was written to the Colossians, so we today need to constantly be aware, be taught, be encouraged, and be admonished to hold fast to that which we have been taught of old. 
For although our God is a God of mercy and grace and love, he is also Jehovah God. He is sovereign, holy and righteous, and it is a fearful thing to fall under the chastisement of our God. So we need to be certain that our doctrine is true, so that our practices may also be true. Now, as we turn back to the epistle to the Colossians, we read in the opening two verses the following. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I've entitled the first point of my message, The Apostles' Address to the Colossians. Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2. All of Paul's letters basically begin in the same manner. Thirteen letters begin with Paul and include grace and peace. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1.7 is the same way. 1 Corinthians 1.3, the same way. 2 Corinthians 1-2, same way. Galatians 1.3, the same way, and so on. But 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus have grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. But here in Colossians, Paul begins with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It was by the will of God, not by the will of man, that he, Paul, was given that office. It was by God himself, not by the laying on of hands, not by the ordination through seminary or church, not by men's doings, but by God's. There were at least three indispensable qualifications for an apostle. Number one, he had to be personally chosen by Christ himself. Acts 9.6 Number two, he had to have personally witnessed the resurrected Christ. Acts, or 1 Corinthians 9.1. And number three, he had to have been endowed with supernatural gifts of the Spirit to authenticate his office. Acts 16.19. Paul, therefore, magnified that office. And he made sure he separated that office from Timothy. For he says, and Timotheus, our brother. Although Timothy was Paul's faithful companion and a great delight to him, he was not an apostle of God. Timothy was a gifted evangelist, a faithful servant, a brother in the Lord. Yet there is often danger in close companionship. There is often the chance that others may assume things that be not. This epistle was addressed to the believers at Colossae. He calls them saints 
and faithful brethren in Christ. Towards God they were saints because they believed God. Towards men they were brethren because they had also been redeemed. But in both cases they were faithful. A faithful saint is most pleasing in God's sight, while a faithful brethren or a brother is a great blessing to the church. Paul greets them with grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to the believer from Jesus Christ, but judgment and wrath to the unbeliever from this same Jesus. Grace is free unmerited favor to the sinner, something that God freely gives which the sinner does not deserve. And who better understood the grace of God than the former Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted mercilessly the flock of God, those whom God, Christ, came to save. It was grace that met him on that road to Damascus that day and opened his spiritual eyes in Acts 9, 1-16. It was grace that broke his stony heart of legalism and gave him a new heart to love his God with. It was grace that brought Paul the peace of God that passeth all understanding, but it was a different peace than he had ever known. Grace and peace are precious spiritual blessings to all the saints of God, and so what better way to greet them than to say grace and peace be unto you. And so we come to the second part in the message for this morning, which I have entitled, the Apostle's Acknowledgement of the Colossians, his Acknowledgement of the Colossians, verses 3 to 8. It was through Epaphras that Paul learned of this local church, and it was through Epaphras that the needs were revealed to the Apostle, their fruit and their faith. Later on in the fourth chapter of Colossians, Verses 12 to 13, we learn something of the character of this saint as well. He was faithful to them. He was a fellow servant with Paul. He was the link between them and the apostle. He was a prayer warrior and labored fervently for their cause and for the testimony of Christ at Colossae. He had a great a zeal for this little body of believers, a rare quality in the ministers of the gospel today. He labored to build them up, to stand perfect or mature and complete in the will of God. What a tremendous elder and shepherd to have. He would certainly win your heart if he were here today at faith. And so everything that the Apostle Paul learned of the Colossians, he learned from Epaphras. Onesimus, and Philemon, for as far as we know, Paul himself had never been there. And yet Paul loved them, not only because they were God's children, but also because of their fruit-bearing. The apostle Paul was both thankful and grateful for them. Now thankfulness and gratefulness is an immediate result of grace. Thanks is always directed to the one who saves God. 
Thanks is always given for the saints of God through whom God works. And thanks is always continual. He was therefore, after having heard their report, thankful for the fruits of grace which they evidently demonstrated. Their faith in Christ, not in works, not in circumstances, not in the church, but their faith was in Christ alone. And as a result, they also manifested love, the ultimate fruit of the Spirit. Love to God, love from God, love for God, and love to the saints. Love for the saints and love to mankind. And this particular fruit of the Spirit, love, agape love, is the abiding fruit which is never to perish. And the apostle was also thankful for their hope. What hope? Why, the hope of his coming, of the rapture, of being caught up in the air, of being with the Lord forever, of being free someday from the very presence of sin itself. But all of this came about as a result of the gospel of salvation. There can be no fruit without the gospel. There can be no regeneration without the gospel. There can be no true knowledge of God without the gospel. The gospel always brings good results. Truth dispels untruth. Truth presents us with a sure foundation and an anchor which holds us during the storms of life. Truth never changes. It always withstands the test of time. Truth is the word of God. Truth is the son of God. It is what sets the prisoner free. But all the benefits of the gospel come to the sinner only through the grace of Jesus Christ and because of his faithful servants like Epaphras. We come to the third point in Paul's prayer for the Colossian believers now in verses 9 to 11, which I've called the Apostles' Appeal for the Colossians. This is a very wonderful prayer by the Apostle Paul. It has two aspects to it. The first aspect is a petition or a request on behalf of the believers at Colossae, while the second aspect, verses 12 to 13, deals with thanksgiving to the Father for his role in every believer's life of salvation. There is perhaps no one else in all of the New Testament scripture that was as effective in prayer as the Apostle Paul. He certainly understood and applied all the principles of effective prayer. He knew that prayer was an integral part of every Christian's walk with God, that it was the line through which communication takes place between God and man. It is the way that all saints commune with God and the way through which miracles are made possible. To neglect prayer is to neglect fellowship with our Lord. To neglect prayer is to cut oneself off from the spiritual lifeline. Very few understood the severity of 
spiritual warfare the way the Apostle Paul did. And his fear for the brethren was a very real one, for he knew just how fierce the wicked one is and how he constantly seeks those whom he may devour. Only he who had been tested and wounded could truly understand the perils of such a battle, and as a result was able to pen that wonderful admonition to be strong in the Lord in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, the Christian's blueprint for spiritual warfare. Yes, it's only through prayer that the enemy is defeated. It is also only through prayer that the saint of God is sustained in time of trouble, sickness, and persecution. It is only through prayer that the saint of God grows spiritually and accomplishes things that could be possible no other way. And isn't it interesting that when we grow old and feeble and are unable to do much else but pray, that God in his infinite worth and wisdom has allowed this one avenue alone in which to grow and to come to a closer understanding of him. And so the Apostle Paul prayed. He prayed unceasingly, fervently. He travailed in prayer because he knew the enemy. And here we see him praying for the Colossians. Though the Apostle Paul may have never met them face to face, he nevertheless had a shepherd's heart for them. They were God's elect as he was God's elect because they were in Christ. They were brethren. They were those whom Christ had paid a very high price for. Paul loved them because the Savior loved them and because he loved the Savior. Let's look at his prayer more closely here in verse 9. First of all, he prayed that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Notice the word might. He prayed that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. It indicates a possibility, not a certainty. All Christians have the possibility of being filled with the knowledge of God's will, but not all Christians become filled with the knowledge of of God's will. The apostle wanted these believers to be spiritually wise and understanding. In scripture we are told of two types of wisdom. The wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 2:14 and the wisdom of man in 1 Corinthians 2:11. The wisdom of man is temporal. It can never know the things of God. It is ever changing and is often based on falsehoods and untruths. But the wisdom of God is unchanging. These we discover through the scriptures. We discover the eternal truths of heaven, which are revealed only through the word of God and made a reality through the Spirit of God. Psalm 19, 7-11 reads, 
The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. And secondly, the Apostle Paul prayed in verse 10 that they might walk worthy of the Lord. Again, might appears, again suggesting possibility, that they might walk worthy of the Lord. Now, How might that be? Walking worthy of the Lord always goes hand in hand with obedience to his word. The will of God is revealed in the word of God. Faithful obedience to his word is what honors the Lord. But obedience often has a serious price tag to it because it separates It separates the believer from the world, from the things of the world, and from the lifestyles of the world. But sad to say, so many believers today have white knuckles on both hands because they are holding on so tightly to the things of the world. And when the rapture comes and catches them unexpectedly, and it will, A lot of them will be going up feet first. Walking worthy of the Lord has tremendous benefits, as we see in verse 10. It produces fruit-bearing. A good tree bears good fruit, while a bad tree bears bad fruit. It can be no other way. The Lord himself taught in Matthew 7, 15-20, that it is by their fruits that we will know them. And unless we are rooted in the root of Jesse, unless Jesus Christ is our vine, there can never be any fruit. The goal and design of every believer is to bear fruit for Christ, to grow spiritually, to be like him, to know him. And exactly what kind of fruit are we talking about here? Is it building churches, schools, Old age homes, all in the name of God? Is it taking care of the poor, the oppressed, and so on? Well, not exactly. Because the heathen, the unbelievers, the unsaved do much of these good things for the benefit of all mankind, but that is not the kind of fruit we are talking about here. Galatians 5, 22-25 gives us some insight. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk 
in the spirit. That is the kind of fruit bearing that God is interested in. Christ likeness. Character building is so important. If it is properly developed, then all the outward things will follow. Then the good works will come because they will be Holy Spirit directed and controlled. Souls will be won for Christ through powerful Christian testimonies and real numbers will be added to the church by the Spirit of God because then things will be done in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So the first aspect of walking worthy of the Lord needs fruit bearing. A second aspect to walking worthy of the Lord involves patience and long-suffering for which they need to be strengthened by the power of God, verse 11. The Christian's lot is not an easy one. The enemy walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The world is at enmity with God and his people. The flesh is diametrically opposed to the Spirit of God who indwells each believer. Often the Christian's battle is a very difficult one and a very long and strenuous one. And Paul knew this better than anyone else. Those who seek to be faithful to the Lord experience most often a more trying time and a more fierce battle. Therefore, they must be daily strengthened for the task. But it is not a physical strength that is talked about here. It is not the kind of strength we build up through good food, exercise, vitamins, plenty of sleep, although that too is important. That kind of strength, however, is incapable of doing spiritual battle. We must receive supernatural spiritual strength from God himself in this world of suffering and pain. True spiritual strength comes from God alone. He causes our enemies to tremble, to fall, and to flee. He raises our feeble bodies from the beds of sicknesses and gives our soul courage and fortitude in the face of adversity and overwhelming odds during hopeless circumstances. And it is God and God alone who causes us to rejoice even in the midst of trials and persecutions. Remember Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. They were wounded, bleeding, chained in that dark dungeon, awaiting sentence. And through it all, they were rejoicing and praising God that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. The joy of the Lord is our strength, tells us Nehemiah in chapter 8, verse 10. That was the kind of strength Paul prayed for them to have. That was the kind of strength he wanted them to experience. That was the kind of strength he relied on. And how was it to be gotten? Why, from God himself. Isaiah 40, verses 29 to 31 tells us, He giveth power to the faint, 
and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. With this kind of strength, patience, long-suffering would follow. Then in the latter part of his prayer, the Apostle Paul directs his thoughts to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and gives him thanks for his work in our salvation. And here in verses 12 to 13, we see the beginning of the doctrinal aspects of this letter. Though still part of the Apostles' Prayer, we clearly see the role of the Father in our salvation. The first few aspects of Paul's prayer were possibilities available to all saints of God, i.e. that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will and wisdom and spiritual understanding, verse verse 9, and then in verse 10, that we might walk worthy of the Lord, being bearing fruit for him. But here in verses 12 to 13, we see the lot of every saint's inheritance. Whether he be a babe in Christ or he be mature in Christ, this is part and parcel of every saint's blessing. We see, first of all, that it is the Father who makes all believers fit for heaven. Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. If we were to truly grasp that significance of this verse, our lips would not cease their prayers to our Heavenly Father. It is God the Father who makes us perfectly eligible and perfectly suitable for heaven. No one can ever make himself fit for heaven by his own efforts or by his own merits. And how does the Father exactly do this? We are not told. But sufficeth to say God's word teaches it, and we believe it. Then in verse 13, it is the Father who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Oh, that is such good news. When a sinner comes to Christ, and receives him as Savior, and becomes born again of the Spirit of God, the Father not only makes that soul fit for heaven, but at the same time delivers that soul from the power of darkness. That is, from that power exerted upon us and over us in that dark kingdom to which we formerly belonged, the kingdom of Satan. Its characteristic is darkness filled with sin, error, misery, and death. And by our very nature, those things had power over us. But now, now, says the scripture, we are delivered from them and brought into the enjoyment and the privileges of those who are connected with the kingdom of light. But that is not all. Not only are we made fit for heaven, not only are we delivered from the kingdom of darkness, but we are also, in addition to these wonderful things, translated into the kingdom of his dear Son, 
we are delivered from Satan and put into the care and influence and domain of Jesus Christ. And all of these actions on the part of the Father are instantaneous, unconditional, irreversible, and eternal. Now I see that our time has run out, but as always before I step down from here, we'll have to stop right there and continue next Lord's Day willingly. Are you in Christ or out of Christ? There is no middle ground. Christ alone died for your sins and mine. His blood alone is sufficient to cleanse not only us from our sins, but the entire world from their sins. And he alone has the power to give eternal life to all who will come to him for the forgiveness of sins by faith. The Bible says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. So why not come to him now if you haven't done so already? He will not turn anyone away. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank thee so much for this precious book to the Colossians. In it we see and hear the Apostle Paul speaking to us, writing to us, encouraging us, uplifting us, teaching us. We pray that by the grace of God, we too might daily grow in his grace and in his knowledge. Part us now with thy blessings, we pray. And if the Lord be not come next week, we pray that thou would be pleased to bring us together round his table once again. For we always ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.